we need to reframe the idea of applying broad statements to circumstances and claiming that it's just universally true. It's a cop-out. Markets, ah, oh, interest rates are too high. Markets suck. Oh, well, I'm a millennial and I got, you know, deal to raw deal. No, you didn't. You live in America in 2023 and you're like, oh, life has been so hard compared to what, two world wars and a great depression compared to minorities and gay people in the 60s. It's so hard compared to then. It's just not. These broad-based ideas can be very, very damaging. They prevent us from having what we want or creating or building simply because the idea stops the action immediately. What's up, everybody? So today, Ernie and I here, we have three topics we're covering. Now, these are three topics that I've wanted to cover um, more in depth for a little while because I think that the main points just get lost in all the information. And that's first home prices. But then we also want to talk about leverage or really the things every business has to do to be successful, not just successful in business, but you need to apply those things to life. Um, and then last is bad is good and what that means in its real form and why what a lot of times we think are really bad things are not only good things, but they are necessary and we would be lost without them. So first thing we want to touch on here is home prices. Now, not today. I know a lot of times at this podcast, everybody, I like to talk about numbers, trends, uh, even specific examples, particularly when it comes to asset prices, home prices, what what's happening with capital in the economy. Um, but for this, I want to hit on something a little more fundamental. And that is the fact that home prices... Uh, every single cycle and my entire life, there has always been a housing crisis. Always. Now, the housing crisis has always come in a couple ways. The first thing is price, meaning we have a housing crisis because it is unaffordable. Now, I don't know those of you that um, are on my Instagram, you could go see, I actually took a video of, I think it was San Diego back in the 90s saying how in San Diego, this, you know, four bedroom, two bathroom house was unaffordable because it was $85,000. And nobody could live in San Diego anymore. And um, the reason being is there's actually a reason. So there, there's a reason why this is and there's a reason too why that will, it will never end. First of all, if it's not a pricing problem, it is a affordability problem, meaning that affordability on how much you have to pay, i.e. interest rates. A $200,000 house may be completely unaffordable and completely affordable at the same time, not because they're a different person to the same person, depending on how much you have to pay to own it, right? So a $200,000 house at 1% interest rate may be affordable for the vast majority of the population, but a $200,000 house at 10% interest rate may be unaffordable for the vast majority of the population. So the taxes, what you have to actually pay is for term, terms of debt, and then utilities go into affordability. So 
You may have a housing crisis in price because it's unaffordable to achieve. The down payment that you have to get is so much to buy that home, you're not sure how you're gonna get it. It may be unaffordable in terms of actual cost, like how much you have to pay. So monthly ongoing cost, that could be unaffordable, right? Then the other side of is it's a housing crash. So the housing market is not something you wanna be in. Housing is bad, it's now worse. There's also a third one here, and that would be that it's not affordable because you can't, meaning that housing prices are now super low, but they are low due to the fact that nobody can buy them, right? Now, that was after 2008. So prior to 2008, there was an affordability crisis in pricing. Then interest rates went up. So in the early 2000s, uh, affordability was really bad because housing prices were just going up nonstop. Well, then it got really bad once interest rates went up and then it been affordable, everybody uh, went bankrupt or they just left the house because they couldn't afford it. So the cost to own that home that was now priced a lot, now housing price crashed, people weren't able to access credit. So even though the housing prices were lower, it was unaffordable because they actually couldn't buy it. Now, the reason is, is there's markets are being efficient, right? So markets are not trying to price incorrectly the people that are participating in this market are pushing boundaries. So if you can stop people from buying too much, selling too much, right, or changing and wanting more, then you can stop inefficiencies in the market. The market itself is always trying to get to a mean, meaning between the cost, between the payments, interest rates, and between the buyers and sellers, there's an equilibrium that it almost rarely ever hits. Other than that, it's going up and down, in and out. So when people say, oh, we can't buy a home, right? Millennials are the classic example. It's unaffordable, millennials say it's unaffordable for them to buy homes, right? Our parents were so lucky. That is laughable. Our parents lived in a time where interest rates were 18%. 18%, we're complaining about six. Like that, it's, it just sounds stupid, right? It, the idea that millennials have it worse off than our parents, it, it's stupid. That's unequivocally not true, you guys. I, I mean, first of all, look at the total cost. Actual disposable income is twice what it used to be. You have access to more debt, you have access to more capital. Home ownership is doubled. So that means twice as many people, even millennials and young people are buying homes, right? The reason we say this and look at it is because we can't think outside today. Oh, America's so bad and it's being destroyed. Compared to when? We've basically eradicated extreme poverty around the world. You are on an iPhone and you have more power than a space shuttle did as far as technology goes. You can be constantly entertained, have constant communication. You can work from Fiji. It's not worse. And 8% interest rates are historically not crazy. So the problem with the housing market and affordability is it's taken from moments when markets are changing, meaning it's either too high or they're too low. But it's not an equilibrium, i.e. it's not perfect.
And that will always be true. Why? Because if it wasn't, humans wouldn't be humaning, right? We just stop. We would think perfectly logical and we would never buy more than we should. We would never take out more debt than we should. We would never sell when we shouldn't. And we would make logical sound decisions. Like millennials would have started buying before 2020. And guess what? They would have worked two jobs and saved up more. Now, of course, the vast majority of millennials couldn't buy a home. So don't yell at me and say, oh, work two jobs. So easy for you to say. It doesn't mean we should all own homes, though. We also have to come to grips. The last time the government tried to make us all own homes, because what happened? We have a housing puzzle. The FAIR Act, literally Clinton sent a bunch of people down to Florida, all the biggest banks, put them in a room and said, don't come out until you have a plan. So the Clinton administration said, don't leave this room until the big banks, you've come up with a plan that every American can own a home. They did. That's called mortgage-backed securities. And they built products that allowed everybody to own a home. The problem is, everybody shouldn't own a home. There's plenty of times in my life where I shouldn't have owned a home. And I think that we get lost in this a lot. That there's times that it's appropriate, times that's not. We also think that the conditions should be favorable to us at that given time without realizing maybe what conditions actually are favorable to us and the sacrifices that had to be made on the other end. So housing prices are unaffordable. And I'm going to tell you right now, for the vast majority of the population, they always will be. To think that you shouldn't sacrifice to have a home, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's the American dream here. You're talking about something that our parents' generation and their parents' generation dreamed of. That was you made it. These are people that didn't even take vacations, right? These are, you know, our grandparents that didn't even had paid holidays. That didn't exist. They, they didn't have health care. They didn't have these things, right? They definitely weren't traveling. That's something they didn't do. And if you know and you say, oh, well, my grandparents did what, that was actually the minority. We can see this. So we need to reframe the idea, I think, of applying broad statements to circumstances and claiming that it's just universally true. Now, you may say, AJ, why are you so triggered by this, right? And I think this is the reason I'm so triggered by this. When we do that, we take away the power. What we're doing is we're taking away our power to act within circumstances to benefit ourselves. It's a cop-out. It is. It's a cop-out. Markets, ah, oh, interest rates are too high. Markets suck. Oh, well, I'm a millennial and I got, you know, dealt a raw deal. No, you didn't. You live in America in 20... 20, I mean, 2020 to 2023, and you're like, oh, life has been so hard compared to, what, two world wars and a Great Depression? Is that when it's been so hard? What, to, well, compared to what? Minorities and gay people in the 60s? Is that when it's been it's so hard compared to then? It's just not. And by saying things like that, all we're doing is we're putting a label for an excuse. And we makes us feel better because now we're grouping ourselves in with other people and we're accepting that all of us were okay and it's not our fault. Um, I'm triggered by that because of today's conditions. Uh, this is something I constantly hear. Interest rates don't mean I can buy. 
right? Well, Bob, you weren't buying when interest rates were low. You're not buying today. It doesn't have to do with interest rates. You know, uh, I can't start a family because I can't afford it. Who had a family when they could afford it? You ever had kids? What, what do you think is like, what do you expect here, right? It's like, there's just so many excuses that we put upon ourselves. And I feel like millennials are the kings of excuses. Now, granted, I feel that way for the same reason that they feel that housing's unaffordable. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that it's not. Okay, so, I, and I'm going to get back to this. But it's because we all see things in a very slim minority. It's this moment, right? Now, the housing will, yes, it will be afford unaffordable at times for a larger percent of the population. And it will be more affordable for others at times to a larger percentage of the population. The funny thing, though, is that when it's more affordable for the majority of the population, that means they can't buy or it wouldn't be affordable. And this is how markets work. Markets don't care. They don't care about you. But when there's a thousand people that wanna buy a duplex in Iowa, and they're willing to pay, um, and you have out of this thousand people, you have two people that are willing to pay a million dollars for that duplex in Iowa. Guess what that duplex in Iowa is gonna cost? A million dollars. Markets don't care. They're trying to find equilibriums, but they're never there. Situations, people, circumstances change. Pricing then changes. And that leads me into my next point. Price doesn't equal value. Price doesn't equal value. It's not the same thing. Price is a negotiated deal between the value of one person to sell it and what they're gonna get it and what the other person views as a value by buying it. This is called extrinsic value. It's a strike price that is made that changes daily on anything. And it changes by the market participants, right? Now, as these strike prices change and as uh, buyers and sellers change, it's why is it bad that somebody else that wants it more is willing to pay more than you? But, that's fine. That should how it, that's how it should work. Now, we may not like it, but that's how it should work. Now, the value is what we receive. So if I'm buying an asset, the value is what it gives to me, right? That's value. That's called intrinsic value. Extrinsic value is the price that I paid. So we get confused a lot of times with value and prices. And we also get confused of what? So what's the value of owning a home? Well, that brings up a few questions. Is your primary resident, is that even an asset? When you look at affordability, what are you talking about? So let's go back to our grandparents. Well, our grandparents, their home size was half of the average or less than half the average square footage of homes today. Those homes had basically no appliances. In fact, to our grandparents, over 30% of all the homes in America didn't even have indoor plumbing. And the house size was double what it is today. So what are you getting, right? Now, the thing is, houses were never viewed as an asset back then. They were viewed as value. And the value that they received from it was a place to live and one that was located next to the maybe where they were. Maybe it was where they want to be or whatever it is, but it's what they got out of it. It's the life that they built out of it. 
Now, when you look at it today, the same houses that they were buying and the same houses that our parents were buying that we're now buying today are substantially bigger. All of them are fully have full appliances. They all have uh, full plumbing, heating. They have granite countertops and all that jazz. That's not things that our parents had. If your parents did, they were rich. So that's not something they had. I don't even know if my parents have granite countertops today, right? It, that was not even something they thought that we needed. That wasn't even considered it. Well, if you're buying more and you want more, then you pay more. Once again, the problem is not just interest rates. It's just not housing price. I'm not discounting that. I'm saying, yeah, that's unaffordable for the vast majority of the United States. And there's reasons why we're here, okay? There's actual reasons why we're here. And the market is overdone on one side, hence the reason the interest rates are high. Now, it will plateau or even out and there will be an equilibrium and it will change, guaranteed. But also, I think we probably need to change a lot of expectations. And those things go hand in hand. All right, now, this leads to the bad is the good and the good is the bad part. Then we're getting to the four parts of le leverage. So it's not just a rant that I'm going on, even though it, it kinda is, but I want you to rethink about things that are just broad narratives that may totally not be true at all or that we may be giving excuses to. I have plenty of those. I'm not saying that I have plenty of narratives that I apply to myself that are just great get out of jail free cards, right? Um, so we do that with health issues, with everything else, right? That, oh, well, I'm this, so I can't do this. Um, and with finance, that's a big deal mentality and how you approach finance either i'm not that person i can't get a loan i had a conversation just the other day with someone who said well yeah but i can't i can't get a loan to get an investment property i'm like oh well who'd you go talk to what do you mean well what banks did you go what kind of loan did you write well i i didn't they didn't you didn't go to one per you didn't even ask and you're already saying that you think you don't make a lot of money or whatever those circumstances may be that you can't get a loan. Well, for us, we our recent development project that we had, we went out to 120 financial partners and negotiated with all of them trying to find one to get a deal. Uh, so these broad-based ideas that we have inside our head can be very, very damaging. And they prevent us from having what we want or creating or building simply because the idea stops the action immediately. And that's dangerous. A lot of times when I'm doing these podcasts, you guys, I'm simply speaking to myself. You should know that, right? It's like, this is like a reminder for me saying, AJ, you know, these things stop doing these things. And it's like my accountability here telling all of you. So I, I'm in this with you guys. Uh, now, financially speaking, when we're looking at it, do you need a home? Home prices, where they're at, how do you get loans done? My friend Pace Morby is like the king of this, right? You can't get a loan, he doesn't matter, he doesn't buy anything with banks, nothing. He doesn't buy anything with banks, He's everything's subject to. He's going out and negotiating, seller financing, one-offs, right? Do you know, that guy owns so many homes, I don't even know, just everywhere, all across the country, like thousands, it's crazy. And so, yeah, did he have to work harder? Yeah, I mean, he has to do things that aren't just given, meaning it's not like 
he just goes to a bank and they just give him a loan or how you are traditionally supposed to do it, we may say, but because that is not a limiting thing to him where he doesn't believe that even needs to be done, he's wildly successful and he buys his, his residence. We, we were staying with them and their house, which is gorgeous and huge, subject to, totally didn't put any money down, anything else like that. Uh, the dude lives in a mansion. Um, all because he negotiated. And uh, so once again, that is the point of this. And in order to be successful, and or in order for me to, in order for a business to be, we think there's guiding rules. There's not. That is not how life works. And that's not how the economy works. It works in frameworks, meaning that in order to buy a house, you have to have a participant that is willing to sell and you have to come to a strike price and you've got to figure out how to get it done. It doesn't say that you have to put X down, you have to have a banknote, you have to do it this way, that way, that way. No, society created those things to make it easier for us to do that, to have that outcome, to do that action. That's it. But it doesn't mean that's how you have to do it. And so when that means breaks down, or maybe it's not favorable to you, that doesn't mean you can't do it. In business, you guys, I encounter this all the time. Oh, well, we can't do that because of X. So I, I grew to just hate that because I learned that it wasn't true. I'm like, no, we can. Tell me how we can do it. We may not be able to do it in the way that we want. But guess what? Life doesn't care about that. So how much do you want that outcome? What are we willing to do? When you deal with taxes, when you're dealing with everything, the tax books, you guys, the tax code, less than 10% of it has anything to do with paying taxes. Tax code, tax law is not about paying taxes, and it never will be. Why? Because this is not how the world works. You don't pay a tax, and then the country, politicians, goes and builds the country. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it's supposed to work. We build our own lives. We build our own future. What the tax code does is says, all right, here's the rule book and that framework in which you have to do it. Go play, go create. We don't have answers for you. There aren't answers to give because you have to build and create. But yet we've been trained not to do that. We've been trained by school and consumerism that nope, a price means value. You have to pay it. And this is how you have to do it. This is how you have to go to school. And if you don't get A's on everything, you're a failure. It's like the worst training ground for life, consumerism in school, that you could ever have. That is not at all applicable, you guys, to how the real world works. I often think that there's a veil that separates retail investors and retail people that live their life on the system, right? So they're just working on this. And I'm not saying that in some like conspiracy way. I'm talking like the actual system that we all build for each other, which we're, we all are. We're all creating it for each other. That there and then behind the veil is all the builders and there's smoke going off and there's bolts flying there's people yelling and they're over here and you got one guy running over there saying you can't do everything right and then that's really how it's all working it's just a bunch of people trying to figure it out and the key that most people don't understand is you are supposed to be that person you are the one that is supposed to be building your life and your future but Today, it's so easy to be on the other side of the veil. Why? Because society is efficient and capitalism has worked wonders 
and it has created incredible systems that deliver outcomes that were unimaginable just 60 years ago. The level of life expectancy, progress, and uh, it, it just blows your mind, right? So it's easy. And we've actually been trained to think that bad is really bad. But that's not how it works. Bad is good. And when I say that, I don't mean that in just like, like, you know, some wishy-washy way. I mean that in reality as in um, bad is the only way things function. So it take it's so funny talking to people that don't live in the United States. They're like, you Americans are crazy. Why? You're always arguing constantly, right? You guys are so dysfunctional. And I have to remind them, I say, that's actually what makes us great. You want to know why? Because we can argue. Conor McGregor is being investigated right now. Conor McGregor, the crazy boxer, Irish dude. Uh, he's being investigated right now because he criticized the government on social media. And so the government is looking at him for hate speech. That is not America. We actually should argue. We're incentivized to argue because that is how we have progress. America leads the world. It leads the world in social progress, economic progress, legal progress, right? We've led the world in that. I mean, we are front runners in social issues and everything else. The reason being is because we can. If you don't fight, you don't progress. Why? Because you can't work things out. And if you don't fight, everybody settles. We don't challenge. We don't move. We don't do anything. Fighting is good, right? It's necessary. The problem is when you're not allowed to fight, it explodes. And then the system breaks. What people don't understand is the economy, our government in America are predicated on us fighting. I'm fighting with competitors, right? And who wins? Consumers. The government. We're fighting the government and we're fighting and firing politicians and arguing. Who wins? The citizens. But like housing, you guys, there's a median we're always working towards. We're very rarely ever there. So sometimes it's overdone. Sometimes it's underdone. Very rarely, economically, politically, or anything else, are we at the median. Because you guys, the bottom and the top is what make the median exist. Houses are overdone. And everybody's saying it's unaffordable. Do you want to know why? Because housing was affordable for so many people for so long. So what you're seeing now today is the benefit of millions of people being able to own homes at 3%. It just was too much. So it needs to return to a median. The last time it returned to a median, right, it was very bad. <laughs> Everybody lost their homes reset. Home prices are above that now, though. We have a better structure. Home people aren't going to go foreclosure. So now more people own homes. There's more equity in their homes. They're more affordable. More people have them than before the crash. And the system's better. We hit another median. 
then we just went over it, right? Politics, same thing. It's overdone, it comes back. The problem, you guys, is when we can't fight. I want competition in the marketplace to beat the living snot out of each other so I can win, right? We want the consumers to win. We want citizens to win. We want assets to win. But you have to be a long-term capitalist, not a short-term one. Because when you think you're at the median, you may be at the top or the bottom. You can only see the median in a long period of time, a decade, right? Long-term capitalists win. Short-term capitalists get slaughtered. As long as you are constantly changing, adapting, and you set up structures that allow you to fail while you're progressing, you will have highs and lows, but your median will always be going up and progressing. It's probably the most important lesson I've ever learned. I need to have structures that allow me to fail. I call this my margin of stupidity. I need to have a framework in which I can make mistakes and I can also hit home runs, but it's not predicated on me always hitting home runs. That gives me the freedom to try to experiment and that gives me the freedom to move. That's why I buy deals when markets are up, down, and sideways. Because it doesn't matter in the long run in the median. I'm focusing on fundamentals and core things, and I'm setting up an investment structure that allows it to change. I showed this in my podcast, Self-Storage Income. You can go to YouTube and see it. And I actually showed market performance versus my revenue performance on all our deals with investors. And that we allow and we set that up so that markets could change on us. Because they will. So if you think value is price, that means you're buying something with the expectation of the price to go up. And if it doesn't happen, you lost value. That's a bad thing because you can't control the markets. You can't. So they'll do what they do and you will get caught up in them. Instead, you need to structure it that the market can change and it can go back and forth and everything else. But the value you bought is what it produces for you. And over the long run, the median, you will be successful. This is how you build real wealth, long-term wealth. Why? Because you can compound and then you can take advantage of the bottoms and the tops. Now, you may not know they are, but when you're focused on individual value, you'll know when it's not. I like to say I don't time markets, but my money does. And... I've seen that and that remains to be true, meaning that my individual value on a deal, I'm like, this is just really good deal. I don't care what's going on in the marketplace. Then the marketplace comes and somebody's gonna sell and I'm like, I would never buy this for that. You wanna buy it, a buyer comes along and they wanna buy my asset and I go, it's crazy. Why would you wanna buy it for that? I would never do that. That's a really good deal for me, a really bad deal for you. Okay, I'll sell. Does that mean I'm necessarily saying we're at the top or the bottom? No, right? Um, but as long as I have an open structure to allow me to move within and fail, we get there. Hope that makes sense, everybody. It's a very, very important lesson. And that's why though, too, once again, the bad is good on both the bottom and the top because the bad makes the median. So embrace it. Right now, it should be an exciting time for you. Because remember, when everybody says it's unaffordable, that actually means it's going to be the most affordable it's been in a long time. Why? Because nobody's buying. Supply and demand. We, I mean, we, the deals we're seeing today, shocking. 
uh, two years ago, those things would have been pushed millions higher. But it was affordable then. It's not now. Even though the actual value I'm buying on these assets has gone way up because what I'm buying it for and what I get out of it makes an increase. So what I'm getting is now increased compared to what I bought it. So is it unaffordable? Is it worth less? Well, maybe to some people. But to me, value's risen. Now, the hard part is executing and actually getting it, right? So that's why we have to work and we have to work hard. And that brings me to our last topic and segment here, everyone. And that is the four things that every successful business and individual do. These four things all revolve around leverage. Let me be clear. When I say leverage, everyone, I'm not talking about debt, even though it is one of them and is part of one of them. But most people just think of leverage as debt. That's not how you think when you're successful as a business or a person. The four things that we have that you have to leverage to be successful is first time. You have to be able to leverage time. You only have so many hours and you can only achieve so much with it. You have to partner, you have to hire, you have to have contract employees, you have to farm things out. You need to use other people's time or you need to invent, you need to have technology that condenses actions and shrinks time for you. Both of those things together though, you have to apply to be able to get more done. Time doesn't care what you want to do. It just comes and goes. All right. The next one, resources. You only have so much. Now, I often think it's funny because people say, well, I don't have enough money, so I can't buy a deal. Or I don't have enough money because I can't do this. What I'm doing, I guarantee you, I do not have enough money to not only do, I'm vastly shorter than you are at whatever you want to do. Resources is something that obviously the wealthiest people in the world, it's they're not wealthy because they have resources. They're wealthy because they utilized resources. Then they got it after the fact. Meaning this, okay, take the richest person in the world. Call it Jeff Bezos. $300 billion. Well, it took him a trillion dollars worth of value to get 300 billion. He didn't have any of it. He didn't have the money to start it up or anything else, right? So he got really good at utilizing resources that he could apply and use that to leverage what little resources he may have had. And that leverage of utilizing other resources and other people's resources allowed him to increase his own. Now, the third thing, knowledge. You do not need to be the smartest person in the world. In fact, if you are the most intelligent person, the odds of you being successful, um, I think, are far lower. Maybe that's what I could attribute to my success so far. I'm an idiot. Um, I really genuinely believe that. I, it's funny, but um, I'm shocked at everything that I don't know. It's just almost overwhelming at times. And uh, being younger and a kid that was ADHD, dyslexic, the real thing not like I had a hard time paying attention, had to leave school. It was just kind of something I just knew. I thought to myself, ah, I'm not that smart and that's okay. So I got to go get other people that are really smart to help me out. Now that made me more intelligent. 
because I was willing to, first of all, learn, accept, and I had to choose. Meaning I had to work with people and I had to actually find out, okay, you think this, you think this, what is the right one? What are the pros and cons? And then I had to apply it. I had to actually go search. I, I, it wasn't coming from me, right? Now, knowledge is one of the greatest tools that you can leverage. And it's the easiest thing to do. And if you have knowledge, you can accomplish anything. Most people are really not good at leveraging knowledge. They're good at finding something, but not utilizing it or putting it to work. You need to be an expert at leveraging knowledge and other people's knowledge. And then you're literally taking the top off of what you can achieve. It's shocking to me. I can't do that. I don't know how. Like if I couldn't do things because I didn't know how, holy crap, I, I couldn't do anything, right? Stop making that excuse. Not only making that excuse, but start getting way better at leveraging knowledge. The last one is capital. Now, I'm not saying debt. Capital, OPM, right? Your money can work and it can be leveraged. You can leverage other people's money. You can have debt. Their capital can be leveraged. It doesn't exist. It's not real. Debt is money and money is debt. Virtually all the money in the world is just debt. It's made up. It's not real, right? And there's lots of ways that you can figure out how to leverage it. And I'm not talking about the traditional formats of, oh, I couldn't get a bank to give me money. Well, guess what? Banks aren't the only garters of wealth. The thing is, you have to understand what capital wants or needs. So you need to learn. You need to accumulate resources and you need to have the time to do it. You may say, I'm working a full-time job, AJ, and I have two kids. You need to start learning how to leverage time better. I run seven companies. I was building a company. I was building a company from scratch, and I was working full-time for a huge uh, Fortune 500 company. I had kids, and I was getting my MBA. I got really good at leveraging time. And that also required me to leverage knowledge. I didn't have time to just sit down and figure it out. I was okay with that. And I, I expect to have other people help. The greatest thing about this all, you guys, is that leveraging is actually how everything's built. Meaning that we build from leveraging tools and also in our life, right? Your life, working with kids, or having kids, working with other people, building relationships, helping your parents out, helping your neighbor out. You leverage all of these things because leverage is something that should win for everybody. That's the whole point of it. We are taking what's little that we all have, we're putting it together and we're creating a better outcome. This is something the United States was so superior at. It just simply took what all the other countries were doing. The thing that America was superior at was business. We figured out how to leverage everything. We took what everybody else was doing, we put it all together and we just made it better and did it 10x what everybody else would do. And we figured out quickly and we worked really hard to take what was done and reiterate it time and time again. We took from all the old world and we created a new one. We just did it bigger and way, way more. And because we were experts at it, our outcomes were extraordinarily impactful. And when they were bad, <laughs> they were extraordinarily bad.
<laughs> so uh, that's one of the problems with leverage, right? But also remember, there is no way you can take the bad out and just be left with the good. I will die on this hill. It, the idea of having freedom but not allowing people to do bad things is ludicrous. It doesn't exist. And we have to get comfortable with the bad with the good. America can be very extreme, both in good and bad, but that's why it is. Because it's allotted and allowed for. The closer you bring in the meteorocracy and bringing in the bottom and the top and not letting it expand, the lower that median line flat lines. The United States, we don't do that, we're extreme, but then also extreme is the progress, right? This is something, freedom and good, you do not get without bad. Allowing people to have personal choices, you allow them to make bad ones. Allowing people to have things that are powerful, like ownership, like guns, like money, you also allow people to misuse them. You can't take it away and say, because somebody misused it, that means nobody can have it and expect us to grow and to create. It doesn't exist, right? That's why the United States, once again, set up a framework, but allowed freedom to do things within it. So's your life, guys. So many of us, we want this, but we also don't want the corresponding downside. And the problem is we've fundamentally, I think, got wrong on a lot of things. Like risk. Like buying real estate is risky. In fact, it's so risky, I'm going to leave my money in the bank. Your money in the bank account is guaranteed loss. Guaranteed. In fact, the United States government the printing presses of the central banks across the world, the economy as a whole, and the largest military might that has ever walked God's green earth are all working to devalue your money every single year. Why? Because if they don't, you don't have inflation. And inflation has to happen, meaning that the price of goods and services go up. You don't want a lot of it. Anything above 3% starts to get really negative. But you need like 2%. Why? Because if you don't have growth of values, then you don't have growth at all. And if you go below, that's called deflation. And deflation turns into depressions and craters. So it's not going away. Inflation will never go away until it does. And that's really, really bad. It's not deflation. It's not not inflation. It's deflation. <laughs> so there's, there's right. You don't have the, you don't have the good without the bad. This is a point you have to realize because what you're saying is it's risky to own an asset and put my money in because I might have downside, but you also have the upside. Whereas putting my money in a bank account is guaranteed to have downside. Now, the problem is you can do investing in a way that the downside totally outweighs the upside. That's just not smart and you shouldn't do that. But there are plenty of ways to absolutely manage that downside risk. But guess what? The other way, there is no ways to manage that outside risk unless you are risking it to get an upside. Other than that, 
you just are guaranteed a loss. You can't manage that. You can't tell the economy what to do or the government what to do. It's just a guaranteed loss. This way, at least you can manage your downside while still keeping the upside. Is that riskier? Is that really riskier? Is it riskier to build out multiple sources of income instead of having one that you don't control? That doesn't make sense. We apply a lot of emotions to these things and they overturn logic. I worked hard for that money. I don't want to lose it, so I'm not going to invest it. But I'm okay losing it a little at a time until it's gone. That's okay. At the end of the day, progress, you guys, comes with risk. And the bad is part of the good. So just like everything else, you have to manage it just so the bad doesn't overtake it. And as long as you manage those things and do it properly and accordingly, then you can have the good. And you can grow it and you'll be safe, right? But there is no getting rid of the bad. And once we install leverage, those highs and lows, both in housing, the economy, our personal life, they get bigger. The more freedom you give people, the craziness gets bigger. The more choices you have, the more people choose dumb things. It just comes with the territory. And lots of times, as humans, most of the time, we don't like bad. We don't like wrong. We don't like people getting hurt, making bad decisions. So it's our normal reaction to say, I shouldn't do that. They shouldn't do that. That shouldn't be allowed. But we don't realize the corresponding reaction, everybody. Think about how that's applied to your life, what you're doing, that these these paradigms within your mind are actually shaping the reality that you live in, which isn't real. And you're tricking yourself because you're thinking one thing and it's not real. Try to be very pragmatic, non-emotional. You're not going to get it right all the time, everybody. It will go up and down. The goal is that your median will keep rising. Thanks, everybody.